This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Disability Employment Awareness Month rolls on. You are deeply aware that people with disabilities are underrepresented in the workforce. Companies are trying to correct that with more inclusive hiring. But maybe you don't want to work for someone else. Maybe you want to work for yourself. Rabia Khadar is the National Director for Disability Without Poverty. Rabia has thoughts on more people with disabilities becoming entrepreneurs. Hey, good morning, Rabia. How are you? Good morning, Dave. I'm great. Nice to chat with you once again. Really interesting topic in the context of Disability Employment Awareness Month. Why do you think entrepreneurship is a good option for someone with a disability? Well, people with disabilities are still vastly unemployed or underemployed. And, you know, in a competitive workplace, depending on the types of barriers they face, they run into many, many, many obstacles because, you know, although we have all these employment programs, we don't really get that creative at accommodating disabled people so that they can be fully productive and contributing. Everybody wants to contribute, everybody wants to be productive and earn. Unfortunately, we've designed society for able-bodied people, Mm. and hence we've designed jobs for able-bodied people. So entrepreneurship helps overcome some of those barriers because I, as a person with a disability, am in control. I'm the boss. <laughs> I love I love the idea of control and being able to identify the barriers that you want to address directly. But it doesn't mean there aren't still barriers in actually starting your own business. So what are some of the barriers that might prevent someone with a disability from getting their business off the ground or getting started? Well, again, when it comes to employment, we have lots of services that help people you know, fix up their resume, uh, get out there and and get some interviews happening. They get some job coaching happening. Uh, You know, maybe there are um, employment uh, subsidies offered to employers to hire someone with a disability. So there's a lot more support to seek out a job in you know, government in in the corporate sector and within, you know, that whole landscape of employers. However, when it comes to self-employment, if you don't know how to start a business, there isn't necessarily accessible uh, information or opportunities out there for you to learn. Uh, you need help and support in gaining some uh, self, self-employment self skills. There aren't any programs necessarily, or they're far and few between. And again, uh, money. You yeah. know, you need a loan. You need, uh, you know, you, you, you need financial support to start a business. And as a person with a disability, especially if you're living in poverty, you don't have assets as collateral to get a loan, for example. 
Right. I was thinking about that too, Rabia, because I was thinking about uh, the accounting and the bureaucracy, getting a loan, opening a corporate bank account, uh, even things like designing your own website. Listen, it's getting better. WordPress is making it easier to design a web website at a low cost. There are things like uh, Shopify to build to build e-commerce sites, but none of these things are guaranteed easy. There, there's a huge learning curve on every single one of them, and if you're going to work for yourself, then you have to address that learning curve libre solo, just by yourself. Yes, you have to address it by yourself, but you also have to know what you need, yeah. right? So, I mean, I always resort to storytelling, Dave. So let me let me just talk about me. You know, uh, end of two thousand and one, I had enough of working for someone else because. I did not feel that what I was doing was really contributing to what I wanted to see in the world. Uh, I was working for actually an employment agency supporting people with disabilities, and I felt like we really weren't addressing the supports that people needed. So. I had a lot going on in my life. You know, I was a person with a disability. I faced barriers to transportation. I needed some supports at work. Even though this was a disability service provider, I just didn't quite feel supported. I had other, uh, you know, lived experience challenges. I had siblings with disabilities, with intellectual disabilities, having stuff go on, and I needed to support my family. I also had young children, and I just up and quit my job one day. Mm. I was lucky, you know, my husband worked in IT, he had a steady job, so I could afford to take that chance a little bit. But I quit my job and I said, I'm gonna do this on my own. I'm gonna consult. I started to consult. And, you know, I, I describe myself as a social entrepreneur these days because I also saw gaps and I decided to set up organizations to address those gaps. And, you know, um, after setting up some nonprofits in 2013, I established a registered charity called Dean Support Services, which is fully operational now that I'm also the CEO of. And I have a number of people with disabilities and without disabilities that work for me. And we offer programs and services for disabled people. Mm. And one of the areas we wanna look at in the future is entrepreneurship, because so many of the folks that we support with vision loss, with physical disabilities, with intellectual disabilities, face barriers to employment, cannot work full time or in a competitive work environment. So we're looking at what kind of social enterprise or social purpose business can we set up that can help them develop skills, give them some, you know, opportunity to, to you know, have shared ownership, a more, a bigger stake in the business rather than just being an employee and, and allow them to fully contribute to the best of their abilities. Rabia, you said something interesting there in terms of the diversity of businesses that you created over time. What kind of questions should an aspiring entrepreneur ask themselves in regard to the kind of business they want to create, whether that be social enterprise, a not-for-profit, or maybe even just a regular old corporation? Well, first off, they need to find their passion. What are they passionate about? What can they do? Who's around them that can help them? What kind of skills and supports will they need? You know, do they want to be selling products online? Do they want to, you know, establish a coffee shop? What is it that they exactly want to do? They need to figure out what kind of skills they have, what kind of business they want to run. And, you know, a coffee shop can be 
just an old-fashioned storefront business, or it could be a nonprofit coffee shop, and that way, you know, whatever money is made is spent within the business to hire people to improve products. Uh, it could be, you know, also a, a marketing uh, sort of uh, twist, right? That your nonprofit people want to support you. It could be a social enterprise, which, you know, makes profit and again shares that profit amongst the people they, it supports and, and invests into the supports needed to really offer a, a, a wholesome employment experience, a fulsome mm. employment experience in which disabled people are equally contributing and equally benefiting. Along those lines, let's say somebody chooses not-for-profit or something that's a little more social enterprise oriented. How hard is it for an entrepreneur to set boundaries, whether that be time management, commitment to a bunch of people, or even how much they might charge for their own services or product? Well, a nonprofit mindset is terrible, Dave. Like, I have worked in nonprofit and I end up, you know, being asked to speak at events and things like that. And I know people charge like big bucks to do those things, right? I have a hard time negotiating those numbers because. I'm a bleeding heart nonprofit, right? Mm. So I my mindset isn't always geared toward, you know, competition and big bucks. So, you know, I've had to learn over the years to say, hey, whatever you will pay a white able-bodied man, you can pay me as a racialized disabled woman, you know? Mm. Um, mm. Um, but essentially you do end up working 24 hours a day round the clock because it's it becomes your baby you know like dean support services is my baby disability without poverty is is my and my colleagues baby we nurture even though you know we're contracted to support the organization we've been involved from inception we live eat and breathe the issues because they impact us so we give it our all and that's what contributes to success. If you cannot give it your all, if you cannot contribute, you know, 24 seven to the success of your entrepreneurial aspirations, it's very hard to succeed. Uh, Rabia, I don't mean to get you in trouble here because I know all of a sudden it can turn into uh, the naming game and we're leaving people out. That's actually why I'm going to sit this question out because I've done so many stories over the years about entrepreneurs with disabilities that if I start shouting out one or two, I'm going to get loads of hate mail coming my way uh, after the show. But who are some entrepreneurs with disabilities that you want to shout out? You work so closely uh, in this industry, in this business. I mean, there's there's lots of people working on their own, right? There are, and, and I'm not going to name them either, Dave. Okay, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to okay. make any enemies. <laughs> we don't want to make any enemies. I mean, somebody that I don't know that I hear a lot about because of the awards that she's won and the recognitions is is Mayan Ziv for, mm. for her entrepreneurial um, initiative. Um, but also there are, you know, there are lots of social enterprise cafes, um, cleaning businesses, you know, little uh, bake shops and stuff that have popped up, you know, all across the country in different places to support people with disabilities to have meaningful employment opportunities or, or earn livelihoods, you know, uh, for, for folks with mental health issues, for folks with uh, developmental disabilities often. Uh, these efforts are, are made and there are successful businesses out there. 
I, 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 Rabia, that was so diplomatically done. Uh, very, very <laughs> well done by you across the board. Rabia, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Thank you for bringing this topic to the table. You too. Thanks, Dave. That's Rabia Khader, the National Director of Disability Without Poverty. In a moment, the Rolling Stones have a new record. Laura Bain will talk about them in the entertainment report. But first, a major dating app is trying something new. Mike Dubusky swipes right in Tech Trends. Tinder is rolling out a new feature it's calling Matchmaker. That lets you hand your Tinder account over to a friend or a family member and they can swipe on your behalf. The idea is maybe someone you know is going to be better at finding you a match than you are. Gizmodo's Thomas Germain says it comes at a crucial moment for the dating app market. Tinder and the entire dating app industry has kind of hit this plateau, right? We saw this explosion during the pandemic where lots of people were signing up because they were stuck at home. But now that growth has slowed. He says that's why we'll likely see more features like Matchmaker. They need to justify all the money that's been dumped into this business by investors, and they're looking for ways to stand out. They're looking for ways to get users' attention. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of these weird new features popping up in the near future. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Just what you need, more people meddling in your dating life. Shifting over to the world of entertainment, the Rolling Stones have a new album called Hackney Diamonds. Before Laura Bain gives you some details, here's a clip from the music video for Angry. In the clip, a, mu a woman dances and sings to the song while sitting at the back of a red convertible. The car is driving through the streets of Los Angeles and is passing billboards of the band performing. Laura, Laura Bain, I got to say, uh, it's catchy, but I think you can kind of hear their age a little bit on that track. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, music video, in my opinion, is maybe just a little bit tired in terms of the concept. But uh, <laughs> wait, you, wait a... you mean a beautiful woman in a convertible driving down the streets? <laughs> Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, music video, in my opinion, is maybe just a little bit tired in terms of the concept. But uh, <laughs> wait, you, wait a... you mean a beautiful woman in a convertible driving down the streets? <laughs> no, of course not. Um, so this is their first album of original material in nearly two decades. Wow. Now, personally, like that aside, I think they still rock pretty hard for a couple of octogenarians. I didn't mind listening to this album at all. There were some tracks I liked better than others. But in my opinion, nothing on Hackney Diamonds even comes close to touching their greatest work. Um, like you think back to, I mean, you know, some of those classic Stones albums, but uh, I mean, reviews I, I, have like, been I've, mixed. I've, I've said this before, uh, Exile on Main Street is maybe my favorite rock album, Ooh, certainly of its era, but maybe even of all time. Exile on Main Street is a wicked, wicked album. Interesting. I, yes, I'm a, I'm a Let It Bleed fan. Oh, what a record. Yeah. Uh, so as I said, reviews have been mixed. Uh, so Pitchfork wrote, alongside producer Andrew Watt, they turn every trick they can to conjure just one more hit, one more chance to cash in. Ooh, um, oh, so sort of questioning the motivation there. Um, and indeed, uh, the Stones have partnered with Major League Baseball to sell limited edition Hackney Diamond vinyl emblazoned with your favorite team logo. 
<laughs> so Dave, does the merchandising aspect change your perception of the artistic merit of the album? <laughs> I mean, I don't know about the artistic merit, but it definitely is a capitalism at its finest in the entertainment industry. I give them points for creativity because in the world of streaming, what can you do to actually get someone to buy physical media that makes it different? I'm not sure what the correlation between uh, the demographic of baseball fan and Rolling Stones fan is, but either older men, because that does tend to track towards uh, baseball's demo. What do you think of the merchandising? Like, you know, points for creativity, but I don't think it's really going to move me on whether or not I'm going to buy the album. I'm glad you said it, Dave. I was nervous to say, like, hmm, maybe, like, older men. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, given the wealth of uh, of Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, it doesn't make me question the artistic merit that much. I think it makes me feel a little icky, and I was questioning why that is. I think it's because there's certain genres of music, like, like rock, that have anti-establishment sort of counterculture roots and merchandising would be the antithesis of that. Um, but then at the same time, like, who are we kidding? You've been able to get Rolling Stones merchandise at, you know, Walmart and the dollar store for forever. Yeah, yeah, like like the image of the tongue sticking out of the mouth with the lips and the teeth, the sort of 40 licks, if you will, has been their calling card forever. Like that t-shirt is available at every website and every uh, trendy little store that exists because that that logo has stood the test of time. For sure. Now, so I got the feeling you're not the the biggest fan of that track we played, but I'm wondering what do you look for in a new album from veterans such as the Stones at this oh. stage of their career? You know, I'll pull back the curtain a little bit. You sent me this question yesterday, and I've been grappling with it for about 24 hours. Oh, good. <laughs> I I think I'm okay. This is going to sound like a contradiction. I'm looking for something that sounds familiar, but that builds off the familiarity. So I'm looking for something that has a root in something that I like about the band, but then does it a little bit more creatively. I'll, I'll cite you an example. Now, Death Cab for Cutie has not been around for as long as the Rolling Stones. They've only been around for about 23 years. But what they do album to album is their building a little bit on their sound, whether that be adding a new effect or trying a new guitar or doing something to enrich the overall body of what they're doing while still sort of sticking with that beautiful sonic aesthetic they've been using for years. So it's about little changes that push you forward, but to stay in the familiar that I enjoy. And Laura, I know that a lot of artists would probably despise that take because they would say, I want freedom to do whatever I please. I'm an artist and you will consume it. You will, you will eat what I feed you. Yeah. No, I think it's sort of the same for me. And I think this album does sound very familiar and the Stones familiar sound is good. You know, it's, it's, it stood the test of time, but I don't necessarily want them to say, sound the same way they did when they were like 20, 30, 40. Um, I mean, they're 80. I kind of want to see that evolution reflected in their music and maybe singing about some different topics than yeah. they were. It kind of is a little strange. It's like, really, is this the same sort of existential <laughs> stuff you guys are grappling with at 80 that you were at 30? But it, I mean, you know, it passes the the head bopping test for me. Yeah. So I'm not going to complain if someone puts it on, but 
a little, you know, maybe a little, a little stale. Yeah, me, Laura, we're way over time here, so I apologize. But my thought would be maybe try to go down that Johnny Cash road late in his career, where that was more covers mm. rather than original music, but it did show a sort of reflection of someone thinking about their own mortality. But on that super yeah. happy note, I say goodbye and have a lovely day. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Dave. You too. <laughs> That's Laura Bain with the Entertainment Report. Coming up after the break, British Columbia is trying to tear down some regulations for foreign workers to get certified in the province. I've got that story in the regional news update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.